welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And this episode is going to be an early contender for one of my favorite episodes this season. I know it already. I, I'm scared um, <laughs> about what, what about the energy that you're bringing to this episode. <laughs> I think I texted this to you, but my voice is going to register like two decibels higher this entire time. It'd be really fun to edit you down. Oh my god. Okay, y'all. Um, I don't want to bury the lead here, but this is one of those episodes where at first I was like, oh, this is like a box checking exercise, like an episode that we had to do, but we didn't know how excited we were going to be about it. But oh my good gracious. Prepping for this episode, I was losing my mind. Which is par for the course for me. But then Emily was prepping for this episode, and I start getting texts from her indicating that she had a very similar reaction as me. I just... I don't know. You also said you weren't going to bury the lead. That's true. Today! (laughs) Today we're going to be recapping and commenting on the novel adaptation of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. You might be like, why would you do that? They made it into a movie. And we'd be like, yeah, they did. A completely different movie. (laughs) So the way this episode came to be is we were actually tipped off by some listeners a while ago that this novel version of the story is quite different from what we know and love as our second National Treasure film. And, uh, So we ordered the books and decided to see for ourselves just how different it was. And we cannot wait, literally cannot wait, to retell this story to you in a very alternative version. Yeah, it's great. And I received a used copy of this book and would just like to shout out to the fifth graders at Knuckles Farm Elementary School for leaving (laughs) such a kind note in the beginning of my book telling me to dive into a great book uh and dive into a great book i did well it's almost like they're inviting you to dive into a a pit of sorts you know <laughs> almost almost like the parkington lane pit so emily i think it's time for our screams from parkington lane As always, I'd just like to preface this for any newcomers. Our screams from Parkington Lane is really our admission that national treasure is us and we are national treasure. We have fallen deep down into the pit that claimed Shaw's life. And the pit has sort of claimed ours, but in a much more positive way. National treasure just pops up in our daily lives all the time now, and we share those experiences with you here on the podcast in our screams from Parkington Lane. Emily, what's your scream this week? Well, um, I should say at the time we're recording this, it is a little before Christmas, and I went to go see a Christmas lights display at uh, Shady Brook Farms uh, with some family members, and uh, Aubrey will remember last year that one of my screams involved this same place. Uh, where I saw Christmas lights displayed at like Mount Rushmore. Uh, they were also there again. But me being me, I was looking for more references, uh, knowing that I could not use that again. (laughs) And I was coming up a a little short as we were going through. And then right as we were getting to the end, 
there was like a big sign. I don't even remember what it said, like happy holidays or something like that. And for some odd reason, on either side of this arch sign, there were like two Christmas light torches. And uh, so I have very zoomed in pictures of the torches from the car. Um, but yeah, so as soon as I saw that, I was like, mm, I'm feeling I'm feeling the National Treasure vibes here. You didn't get out of the car and like pre- like position yourself to pretend Aubrey, like you were holding the torches. Aubrey, it's a drive through thing. You cannot get out of your car. Who's going to stop you? All of the other people please the car can keep driving you just start running beside it you know anyway um good for you we're basically recycling your screams what (laughs) that was a different scream that was a torch (laughs) we love a torch what is yours aubrey wow that's hostile um my scream actually has to do with preparing for this episode as you all are about to hear we were able to connect with friends of the pod, the Wibberleys, in different aspects of research for this episode. And in doing so, the Wibberleys actually ended up sharing with us a lot of background and sort of rationale for why certain things ended up in the movie the way they did, especially in comparison to this book. And it was super validating to me because so many things they pointed out were all of the things that for two and a half years we have been saying this does not add up there's something missing here they cut something out here what is the reason for this in this movie like this is so confusing and i started to think that we were just overthinking things you know because it is again something we've been doing for two and a half years but their responses made me realize that all of the things we've noticed are very real. They happen for real reasons. And long story short, we are not crazy. We are one step short. But um, ching, beautiful segue, Aubrey. We're going to do things slightly out of order here because of that <laughs> lovely transition. You can pre-order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at tuckerdspress.com. You can also find us to chat with on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. While you're there listening, please feel free to give us a five-star review. Nye, not feel free. Please do give us a five-star review. And you can also find all of this information compiled at one big place on our website, which is nthuntpodcast.com. All right. I think it's time we get down to business because this could easily turn into an eight hour episode if we let it. We're not going to let it, but I just want everyone to know that it could. Uh, so I'm going to rein her in, guys. <laughs> we kind of explained to you at the onset that we had been told about this book and it was different and we should check it out, yada, yada. Uh, So we decided to investigate. And you know how we say that the trailer for National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets is super different and like for a different movie? 
Well, by comparison, the trailer is very tame compared to what we're about to be covering today. Uh, We're going to start by giving some basic info on this book, especially if you want to go out and find a copy for yourself. Uh, Then we're going to go through it scene by scene, page by page, and dive into the major details or the whole entire scenes that differ substantially from the movie. Now, I will say that to prevent this from being eight hours long, this conversation is going to assume a basic understanding of the movie storyline. And so that's also why we aren't going to spend time here talking about minor differences, because there are more differences than what we're going to talk about today. I think that's fair to say. Um, So ultimately, what can you look forward to? Well, some of our longstanding questions and plot holes that we've noticed in the movie have been answered, you guys. Sometimes we even get additional context about a character that we never had before, and sometimes massive new questions are introduced. So long story short, hold on to your hats because this episode is a must listen for all national treasure fans get hyped guys i am i'm just looking at this cover right now and there's just so much here i'm just thinking about how much we have to cover no pun intended in this episode i think we should just get going All right, let's do it. Well, uh, what are we talking about today? Again, if you want to get your hands on a copy of this book yourself, this is called National Treasure Book of Secrets, quote, a novel based on the major motion picture. It is adapted by Anne Lloyd and based on the Wibberley's screenplay. So naturally, as I alluded to before, we did decide to ask the Wibberleys for some clarity and will relay their memories throughout the episode. Uh, But anyway, other details. This book was published by Disney Press in 2007. That date is going to be important later. It's only 144 pages long, and it's also in like 14-point font. Okay, so a little bit of a preface. Based on what you're about to hear, we have been able to confirm that this book was written based on what I would call sort of uh, a penultimate version of the script. So we have had the pleasure of being able to view the final filming script for the movie. And I will say right off the bat, that final filming script and this book are extremely similar. But there are still some differences there as well. So I feel comfortable sort of calling this book like a penultimate version of the script. Seems fair. Um, And because, one of the fun things is, because some of the crazy things we're going to talk about were actually part of that final filming script, those things were actually filmed. They were just cut from the final movie. How do we get our hands on that? Well, some of them are going to be deleted scenes that we're all familiar with, and some aren't. So this is all just context that I feel is very important before we dive in. And speaking of diving in, do you think it's time, Em, to dive into the story? Yes, let us dive into the story. So we start very similar opening. We're ending the Civil War in Washington, D.C. Exciting stuff. We learn that Thomas's son, Charles, is actually named Charles Carroll Gates hmm, and is nine years old. Which surprised me. I'm not very good at guesstimating people's, much less children's ages, but I thought he was older than nine. Yeah, maybe like 12. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Um, but anyway... Patrick 
calls him in the and actually the the movie and in the book patrick calls charles carol gates grandpa charles so i sort of wanted to assess this claim and whether like based on the purported ages and the years this could actually be possible so i did some math and if charles was let's say 85 years old when he died give or take then he would have died in 1941 based on he was nine years old at the opening of this book now if patrick was let's say about 65 years old during national treasure in 2004 that means that patrick would have been born in 1939 now if we allow for some adjustments on both men's ages at their time of death or at the time we meet them then this lineage actually works like charles carol gates could have been patrick's grandfather very cool i know i love that it made me happy um anyway it ends up being in the book charles the kid and not thomas that identifies the mysterious message in the diary as a playfair cipher and in the book we see that thomas isn't really happy about that which makes sense it's kind of charles's big mouth that makes thomas have to start decoding in the first place which always bugged me like in the movie why was thomas just like all too willing to decode this thing for people he had no idea who they were at first you know what i mean yeah i think something else that got me about this scene uh was that in the book was that uh thomas quickly sent charles away um, after he kind of let slip this information about the Playfair cipher um, and was like, here, go go elsewhere. And I was like, oh, cool. Way to make this less traumatic on the child. Uh, but he actually, uh, Charles actually stayed and hid and still saw everything. So it yep. was still traumatic. Oh, 100%. Um, let's keep going here. Uh, the assassination of Lincoln is portrayed pretty much the same way uh which we know is good because the movie portrays it with high fidelity mm -hmm. uh the book though adds even more historical details like the identities of the guests in lincoln's box i'm assuming that's because it's like in a written expository format and yeah. like easy to do that they're not gonna have like name tags on the back of the chairs <laughs> in the major film. rathbone <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um and so here comes i think one of the first big differences uh the cipher is decoded to a different message in the book <laughs> this shook me this shook you oh you are in for a wild ride later then <laughs> yeah thomas decodes the message and it is decoded as gold for confederacy <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they, they weren't wasting any time. It's pretty straight I, to this point. Yeah, it, it was accurate. Um, but, but kind of, but eventually kind of not also. Did you notice that? Like, it's not... Yeah. We'll get yeah. there. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. But, okay, if that shook you, I cannot wait to your reaction to a, a certain number later on in the book. Um. Anyway, the pages of the diary in the book end up getting ripped because Thomas and... John Wilkes Booth's co-conspirator, we will in a moment find out who he was. They're like fighting over, like tug of warring over the book. And that's how the pages get ripped. Minor detail, but that's definitely different than what we're familiar with. Um, 
And that's when we get to the end of the first chapter with our identity of the co-conspirator. It turns out that the guy who salvaged the Booth Diary page and says, oh, the war has just begun or whatever, he ends up being identified as Michael O'Loughlin. Because we see him sort of a little bit fast forwarded being imprisoned at Fort Jefferson off the coast of Florida. And he still has the diary page. He's been sort of kept, he's kept it tucked away. And and um, I found this really interesting because number one, M, it turns out that like if you go on the IMDb for the movie, the guy who played this role, his character name is listed as Michael O'Loughlin. What? I mean, I think it's one of those things where most characters in a movie are named even if you don't end up knowing what their name is. So, like, it's probably written into the script. Actually, I saw it. It is written into the script (laughs) as Michael O'Loughlin. But it did make me wonder, who is this guy? And I looked it up. Okay. So, O'Loughlin was a Confederate soldier. He was friends with John Wilkes Booth basically his whole life. Um, Remember back in the day when we learned that Booth's plan was originally to kidnap Lincoln? Yes. So O'Loughlin was part of that plot. Ooh. And so there was apparently also... The assassination plot was apparently also originally a kidnapping plot. Mm -hmm. And O'Loughlin was part of that plan as well. That plan was canceled. You know, canceled because it was deemed infeasible. Um, And at sort of this cancellation is where O'Loughlin claimed his conspiratorship, if you will, ended up being done. Uh, Even so, he was tried and found guilty of being a conspirator in the whole assassination, you know, John Wilkes Booth, that whole trial. Um, So he was, you know, along with the more well-known names like Mary Surratt and Samuel Mudd, et cetera. Um, And so it turns out that the book is correct here. O'Loughlin was in fact sentenced to life in prison at Fort Jefferson with the other convicted conspirators. And he ended up dying there of yellow fever. Bummer. But cool that he's real. Yes, I mean, I'm not surprised, to be honest, um, given everything we know about this franchise at this point. And some of that sort of seeps into the first present day scene of the book, which <laughs> did did this break you, Emily? I was just like, what are we doing here? So the part that confused me the most <laughs> was the fact that we started out here with Ben and Abigail was described as his fiance. And I was just like, whoa, hold on a second. I feel like we missed some important stuff that I, Emily, the hopeless romantic, would have liked to see. Um, also then started kind of like questioning because I remember we talked to the Wibberleys during one of our interviews with them. They had mentioned that part of the reason National Treasure 2 started with Ben and Abigail broken up was because they wanted to kind of represent this breaking apart of unions, breaking apart of families, which is something that you saw in, in the Civil War. So I was immediately like, what is 
what is going on here. But, you know, we'll we'll get back to that in a second and why it makes sense. Well, love that that was what you hooked on to, because what yeah. I hooked on to was the fact that, well, this scene is basically Ben being a professor on an archaeological dive with his students at a shipwreck near Fort Jefferson. <laughs> I mean, Abigail is indeed confirmed his fiance, and yes. she's present. But that is like a my I I noticed it as well. But minor detail compared to the rest of the exposition here. Basically, they're investigating the fact that a random KGC ship had sunk en route to the fort in bad weather, right as everyone, including O'Loughlin, was dying of yellow fever back in the day. And so Ben thinks that this means. There could be a clue leading to the gold for Confederacy. (laughs) (laughs) And while this is really funny, I do feel the need to point out that in this case, at this point, early point in the story, Ben is just treasure hunting. He's looking for gold for Confederacy, like as a treasure. He's not trying to prove anything at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting to me. Yeah, That's it really con- would change the tone, I think, of everything. And it just so happens that this clue he was sort of investigating is going to end up being related to the treasure hunt he ends up on for a different purpose. Yeah, I mean, movie magic, book magic, screenplay sure. magic. Screenplay magic. Speaking of screenplays, this was one of the scenes that we asked the Wibberleys about, um, and they confirmed that they originally wrote a scene at Fort Jefferson because they knew that the convicted conspirators from the assassination were in prison there. So, you know, what's to say that they didn't also hide a clue there? Um, This was, however, cut from the script early enough that it was not filmed, which makes sense because this feels like a big, you know, monetary commitment to like film an archaeological dive. So especially because of the fact that what they end up finding through this dive um, is largely inconsequential uh, for the rest of the plot. Like it doesn't it doesn't really, it's it's cool history, but it doesn't really help us in any way. It's a great point. So what they end up finding in the smuggler's hold, get a call back, uh, there ends up being a crate of 1800s Liberty Head gold coins. And Ben sort of explains this as, oh, they had brought this along to bribe the guards at Fort Jefferson, but they obviously didn't make it there. Um, interestingly, Emily, did this register for you? Do you remember during our chat with the Wibberleys in the offseason season? Cormac had a memory of like an, one of the original treasures was supposed to be Confederate gold of some sort. Mm, yeah. I was like, maybe this is what he's remembering. Maybe. And maybe he was also remembering the clue gold for Confederacy. <laughs> <laughs> Very possible. The other connection I made here was remembering back to our initial interview with Charles Seegers back in the day, who shared that one of his early uh, openings to the movie the original movie was Ben scuba diving off of a shipwreck. So I was like, oh, maybe that was a conserved idea that made its way into this script at one point. Yeah, I had I clocked that as well. Oh, very nice. We love that for us. Um, okay, now we're gone. We're away from the, the shipwreck. N- now we're back into the territory where I'm comfortable, okay? <laughs> okay? We all know how long it took me to understand 
the second film. And I say took me as if it was a past tense concept, but I it, it's still taking me um, a while for this. Um, but so I'm I'm back in my comfort zone. I'm like, mm, I remember you know the the first scene that we see ben in in the movie so we see ben we're in dc ben is apparently giving lectures to tourists at the smithsonian which is where bits of the templar treasure went like that's not exactly right but it was similar enough for me that i was like okay we're on some common ground um so we actually talked to charles seegers in preparing the forward for our book and he mentioned that he had this idea of Ben Gates being kind of like a museum docent and that 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 was something that he envisioned Ben really enjoying and doing very well. Um, so maybe that's where this comes from. But anyway, Ben is giving a lecture here. OK, this is where we see Ben giving his lecture in the film this all once again it's all good to me it makes sense we are we are here um and, and then things start going awry again okay what happens next is our first indication that this book contains many of the deleted scenes that we all are familiar with from like perusing YouTube. So for instance, the the deleted scene of Abigail sitting in the Queen Anne chair and refusing to let the movers take it out of the house because mm -hmm. Ben's moving out. We've seen that filmed. We don't see it in the movie. It's in the book. It is. It is in the book. Um, and that hurt my heart because they were the meant that they were broken up but but know. this is one of the questions i had there wasn't really much of a like six months later or anything between in the book between the dive and this lecture so no i, I mean to be fair they didn't really do it in in the first part either where we went from the assassination to michael in prison that's true but i, I think that's fairly recent like the the trial i don't think was too long after the assassination true um okay but anyway lecture is happening and this is of course where we meet big bad mitch we learn so much more about mitch in this book oh, it's amazing. so helpful he's a um, fleshed out character <laughs> completely like oh my gosh do i actually not mind mitch as much now i'm not sure anyway at the back of the auditorium when we meet mitch the story that he gives to ben and patrick in front of everyone is a little bit different he says that his great great grandfather silas worked at herndon house this is the place where booth and O'Loughlin find Thomas right in the very beginning so Silas worked at Herndon House and was there the night of the assassination and said that Thomas Gates called the KGC meeting and then all the KGC men Thomas included got in a big fight there were guns involved and that's how Thomas was killed he was shot and the pages just like kind of got ripped out and as they do with gunfire right um and so then as a reader you might ask yourself okay so then like how did silas get the booth diary page that mitch is about to present to everyone and to be fair i don't think this is a plot hole i think this is supposed to be like an intentional plot hole so that you know something is fishy about mitch and because mm -hmm. this actually our question about where the diary page like how it got to mitch it gets answered oh my gosh <laughs> amazing <laughs> okay so another minor detail but 
it was minor enough that it made me think I was losing my mind. Did you notice this? In the book, Dr. Nichols, so the curator guy that sort of facilitates all of the official work with the Booth Diary page once it gets turned over, he works for the Smithsonian, not the Library of Congress. And then we also learn very soon that Abigail works at, quote, the museum, the Smithsonian, as well. And I, this, this made me so confused because I was like, like we, she does work at the Library of Congress in the movie, right? 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 <laughs> it will come as no surprise to you that I didn't clock. <laughs> Did you read our own book, Emily? <laughs> Um, I just read a lot of other things since. Well, I did confirm it, though, the whole movie she works at the Library of Congress thing, because there are images online of her badge blown up that they mm, reference multiple times right. in the movie, and it says Director of Conservation, Library of Congress. So, anyway, we can all rest assured that we remembered that properly, or in Emily's case, didn't. Uh <laughs> <laughs> It was at this point in the book that I realized, I'm wondering if you noticed this, since you're big on quotes, um, some of the dialogue in the book is like verbatim from the movie, yeah. and then other bits of dialogue is extremely different. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that. But I would say that consistently the most verbatim lines are Riley's. Did you notice that? I did, although I noticed that he got like one or two extra kind of like scene line funny bits uh in the book than he did in the movie but yes i would say for at least what we saw in the movie that's being translated into this book like yes it is pretty consistent with what he says i guess that's probably because like most of his lines are funny and it's probably pretty hard to like mess with jokes and still make them land hmm or at least that's what I'm going to assume. Anyway, we learn when he's at Borders for his book signing that he self-published his book, which means nothing to most people listening. But since we recently went through the whole publishing process and like we're choosing whether that was the right option for us and it was not, it meant something to me. Yeah, we're we're a step ahead of Riley. We'll take it, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, jumping ahead. At Abigail's house, Ben and Riley have broken in because they need her, I guess, Smithsonian badge, even though we know it as her Library of Congress badge. Um, and we learn that Phil Dumphy, his name isn't just Connor. Did you notice this, Emily? No. It's Dr. Connor Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton, you say? Yeah, I mean, very. we could have guessed that, right? I feel like we could have guessed literally the, the surname of any founding father in American history. We would have had like a 5% chance of being right. Um, but I will point out, you know, we reference IMDb and how characters are referenced earlier. I will point out that both the National Treasure Wiki and IMDb did not know that his name was Dr. Connor Hamilton. They thought his name was just Connor. Mm. So drop a knowledge knowledge bomb enlightening y'all um so of course we know that our trio goes uh, to i guess the smithsonian to spectral image the booth diary page under infrared um radiation and this is another point that's going to mean nothing to most listeners but emily did you notice that the book specifically says they're using a synchrotron i noticed the word i had no idea what it meant but okay well that is L-O-L. Um, 
A synchrotron is like a super massive and super powerful x-ray source for experiments. It's like the size of football fields. Oh. Uh, not the tiny instrument being shown in the movie. I just thought this was so funny because they they like made an effort to put a name on it that was like so wrong. And it just made me laugh as a scientist. Also, for the record, it did make me wonder, like, does Smithsonian have access to a synchrotron? Because there's not one in D.C. There's not a lot of them in the world. And so I was able to confirm that the Smithsonian does not have one, but they do partner with France's National Synchrotron Facility for studying antiquities, which I found fascinating because, like, there are other places to do this work. Right. It doesn't have to be that far, maybe. So, fun facts. Of course, Abigail is part of this synchrotron experiment if we're going if we're going there um and something that i noticed early on m and i'm assuming that you did as well is that there's a lot more about the ben abigail relationship in the book and like their inner thoughts about each other compared to the movie i'm guessing you noticed that oh boy did i notice that and you know my thought was i need to start reading more books um, because I realized that one, I wasn't crazy. I'm, I'm not crazy. So I always say like the love story feels like a big part of the movie to me and this whole thing. And the fact that it's given like a decent amount of space in the book with kind of inner thoughts about one another and stuff like that, uh, made me kind of just feel seen. Like I wasn't just making it, making it all up in my head that that there was actually supposed to be context behind these things. But you're obviously, you know, unless you're having Diane Kruger stand there and do like an out loud monologue of her inner thoughts regarding Ben, right? You're not really going to hear any of this in, in a film. For sure. But it's curious, too because we got to see more of this, I don't think that this paints Abigail in the best light, what we did see in the book. Like, she was definitely portrayed or depicted throughout as, like, and then, I don't want to say doesn't portray her in a good light, because she can do whatever she wants, but, like, if Ben is our protagonist that we're supposed to love and care about, she was portrayed as someone who, like, went out and started dating everyone. Like, had a lot of, like, and she can do whatever she wants, but if we're supposed to feel sympathetic to Ben, we don't like that, right? Right. Because there's a lot of references to, um, well, it ends up being, she doesn't work at the Library of Congress, but how does she, she know? the library. Exactly. That's how she knew her way around. Or we find out that Mitch, her meeting with Mitch was under the, under the pretense that it was like a date. I always kind of figured that. I did, and I thought it was exclusively about the Booth Diary page. No, but also I think there's a the the she dated a librarian thing also could have been from before. But I had that thought. I do have to say that I had that thought. I don't think so though, because they made a point of after it, like it was like there was like a they described it as almost like an awkward thing that she said that because of the implication of it. But yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if I wanted all of that in the movie now that I know what it was supposed to be in a okay. weird way. So, um, Aubrey, uh, pretty soon after this, we get the introduction of your favorite character, the one and only Peter Sadowski. We do. Uh, and he's pretty much introduced in the same way. You know, he's suspicious about Mitch when Thomas Gates ends up in the news because of Mitch. Uh, but the book's hot take, I really like this. It's, they describe Sadusky as, quote, 
the man who had unintentionally helped Ben on his quest to find the Templar treasure. And I was like, is that shade? Or is that them trying to reference the ocular device lenses? Or is that referencing the fact that, like, Ben was able to escape FBI custody when Sadowski was on the job? I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a fair point. Um, so that's our introduction to Sadowski. I swear he's even less relevant throughout this book than he is in the movie until the very end. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> And then he's suddenly, like, the equivalent of the president, spoiler yeah, and alert. he's, like, the main character. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, okay, now we're at Patrick's house. You know, they're watching the announcement of the Booth Diary page on the computer, like a live stream. But this is also the scene where they crack the cipher. And how they do it is just a little bit different. Um, ben says that, you know, Thomas must have solved the cipher. And, you know, that's why they killed him. And Patrick agrees and says, yep, that must have been it, because Grandpa Charles says it was the debt that all men pay. And it was like... Just casually throwing that in there. What? Exactly. Like, so that was a little a little wonky, um, but I guess it got us there. It got us to La Boulay Lady. So Ben and, and co, they're off to France. Um, and in the meantime, while they're on this, you know, six-hour flight, we get a little bit more backstory on Wilkinson from Agent Sadusky's team. Oh my goodness. This fascinated me. Do you wanna you wanna tell everyone? Yeah, Mitch has brothers. Not only does he have brothers, those are the henchmen. Yeah, yeah. They're his brothers. Um, their names are Seth and Daniel. Apparently, they were previously linked to a strip mining operation in Uganda in 1997, as well as a Baghdad museum looting in 2003. Mitch, apparently we learned, had a private security company that actually held contracts with Iraq during the 2003 invasion and in Uganda in the late 1900s. So we're like, a lot of bad things are happening. Okay, my big question is if the FBI is casually saying, oh yeah, Seth and Daniel uh, were part of a Baghdad museum looting in 2003, my question is, okay, why aren't you going to arrest them then? Right, yeah. Like, why are they not in jail? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, it blew my mind that the henchmen are these brothers. And so naturally I consulted IMDb again. So I learned that IMDb does in fact call them Seth and Daniel, but they don't have a last name attached. So the fact that they're Wilkinsons, in my opinion, is news. It is news. And like, it... Uh, okay, so like, the whole idea is that, you know, Mitch wants to make a name for himself, right? That's the whole contrast between he and Ben, right? Ben wants to kind of like save his family's name. And Mitch wants to make a name for himself and his family in this way. But, like, by putting his brothers as his henchmen, I guess you could argue that, like, they're all trying to make a name for their family. But then it also just becomes, like, confusing because then it seems like it's not about making a name for the family and it's more about just, like, 
we do violence. Um, <laughs> we do violence trademark. <laughs> TM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of we do violence. Oh, yeah. More more violence to come. Beautiful segue. Because, of course, we know that Patrick needs to be attacked in his home, right? Because we, we need, you know, for Mitch to be able to follow Ben in a, an effective way. Okay. In the movie, might I remind you... They simply, like, I say simply as if this isn't awful. They simply, like, knock Patrick unconscious on the back of the head and clone his phone while he is knocked out. Mm-hmm. In the book, we get a very non-Disney, I would argue, scene where they attack Patrick by injecting him with a syringe and, like, some chemical that makes him pass out and then attach him to a polygraph machine. And they basically, under threat of killing him, they force him to explain the Statue of Liberty clue. And I found it interesting that in this moment, Mitch correctly points out, oh, the Statue of Liberty wasn't built at the time the cipher was written, blah, blah, blah. So, like, Mitch is definitely more historically knowledgeable in the book, which tracks with his educational pedigree. Remember, he has a history degree, and we were always confused, and like, why aren't you using it? <laughs> in the movie, anyway. <laughs> and and so, as a result, Patrick tells Mitch the clue is in the torch, because the torch was built first. And Emily, I'm assuming you noticed immediately that this is a Patrick parallel moment. I did. It's just like when he gave the false clue at the end of the first National Treasure movie. And like, also, I doubt it was meant to be this connected. But the fact that he's talking about a torch and he was talking about lanterns in the first movie just made the connection like all that more poignant to me. (laughs) Yeah, because this ends up being like a a false clue that i don't know patrick was failing the polygraph when he was lying at some point but then he gives this false clue and like suddenly the polygraph doesn't know anymore um so like good job patrick i mean polygraphs aren't great anyway (laughs) no but like good good controlling of your the system there um and we did ask the wibberleys about this scene as well because this i don't know this was jarring to me yeah it was it was violent And get this, the Wibberleys told us that they had written into the script something like intravenous water torture, which sounds terrible. But then they realized that like just having Mitch clone the phone gave Mitch everything that he needed. So they just like cut out the torture element. It feels like a smart choice for a Disney film. Yeah. And so I will point out that they did end up cloning the phone but they actually don't tell us that in the book until mitch just suddenly starts listening into phone calls later on (laughs) and this was this actually that whole discrepancy between being told about the cloning and then the cloning having happened that for me was the first sign that this was sort of an in-between version of the script like not all the loose ends are tied up here Mm, i like that Okay, so moving right along, we are now at the Parisian Statue of Liberty uh, with Ben and Riley. Ben sees a placard that literally just says Resolute in bold. (laughs) And he's like, oh, I got it. Okay, first of all, super lame. Way, way less fun than in the movie where they get the little drone helicopter thing and they're like reading the torch itself. Also, 
Also, I noticed this, so I am proud of myself. This becomes a plot hole <laughs> later because at a certain point, the characters say that the clue they found at this Parisian Statue of Liberty was these twins stand resolute. That's not the clue that Ben just said he saw. He saw resolute. <laughs> In between version of script. <laughs> Okay, here's another one. So then they go off to London, right? They go to Buckingham Palace, and Abigail shows up. Well, Abigail shows up because she figured out the Laboule lady clue herself. Although she then mentions the clue at the Laboule lady. So she mentions these twin stand resolutes. So, like, did she also go to the Statue of Liberty and see this placard slash riddle slash not riddle? Did, did, Ben call his dad to, didn't he, he called his dad to say they were going to Buckingham Palace, right? Yeah, and Mitch listens in on the phone. That's how we find out he called on the phone. So we, we know in the film that Patrick told Abigail where Ben and Riley went, and that's why she showed up. And so I guess I assumed that we didn't see part of the phone conversation between Ben and Patrick in the book. And he had told Patrick the clue and then Patrick just told the clue to Abigail and then Abigail figured it out and went, which makes no sense. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we're going to skip over the whole diversion that's created in Buckingham Palace. There are little differences there as well. Not important enough to talk about. They get to the queen's study. This actually made me very happy. Ben and Abigail had to try way more number combinations until they were successful with, like, the puzzle box drawers. Um, Because, you know, the fact that they only took two tries in the movie always bugged me a little. It's like, I know you're good at this, but, like, you're not that good. It's ridiculous. So this felt more realistic. And then once they get into the desk, they see the plank. They take pictures of it with a phone camera and a real camera. And then they leave the plank there. (laughs) that changes everything and then when they leave buckingham palace mitch has abducted riley riley told mitch like what was going on and then a fist fight ensues that basically leaves the protagonists running away from the wilkinson brothers who at this point now remind me of that those bad brothers from one of the prequel books did you see that too Yes, I totally agree. <laughs> Only now that we know they're brothers. Before, it never would have thought. <laughs> um, okay. Then, at some point, they end up in the car chase, um, which, LOL, <laughs> this is a minor detail. Ben is driving a BMW in the book, but in the movie, I guess they couldn't get a, a brand deal with BMW because they end up in Mercedes. So, like, sad face. Couldn't get the BMW. Oh, well. The car chase ends up ending, get this, with Ben driving his car into a train tunnel, blocking the tunnel with his car, and then escaping on foot through a maintenance doorway. Now, you would think that he blocked the train tunnel with the car so that Mitch's car would, like, slam into it or something like that. No, they just stopped and got out and chased them on foot through the maintenance doorway. And then in the chase, Abigail drops her freaking camera, and then Mitch gets the camera. This made me so annoyed. Honestly, I know you don't like car chases. I don't really like them either. I I bet you hated this because I really hated this. 
I'm gonna be completely honest. I kind of skimmed through it because it was, it was a car chase. It was really long too. It was multiple pages. That's how I feel about car chases as represented in films as well. Well, the Wibberleys said that an early draft of the script did include them driving into the the channel, as it's called, in London. But ultimately, once the traffic camera idea was floated, that was, like, way more fun and probably also cheaper to film. So they went that direction, and I'm very glad that they did. Yeah, yeah, much better. So instead of using the red light camera idea, which we know is our BFF Dustin Ingram's favorite, shout out to Dustin over from National Treasure Edge of History, the book version has been simply emailing the cell phone photo to Riley. Super boring. And so naturally, when we get back to the U.S., it's time to start decoding it. Um, Emily, this is the point, I think, in the movie where we often have this conversation about when did they know they were looking for Cibola. Mm -hmm. And it's usually at this point in the movie where they first suspect it. Mm -hmm. And I noticed, being at the equivalent point in the book, it is very clear that we have not been led for a single second to think that Cibola was at stake. Right? Because in the movie, Thomas translated the Playfair cipher, and we, the audience, saw the words Temples of Gold. But mm -hmm. Ben and, and Abigail, they don't know that. And so it gets really confusing in the movie because the audience knows stuff that the characters don't know. Yeah. And that's why that's so, like, jarring and difficult to work with. But here, because the translation was gold for confederacy, that could mean literally anything. <sighs> Dear Lord. And the now, gold for confederacy thing just coming back. <laughs> in a, in oddly a, a positive way here, because now Patrick tries translating that one glyph, and he says this is Cibola, and now for the first time everyone collectively the characters and the readers are like oh is that what's at stake um and so of course now they go to dr emily appleton's office and we get our first plank translation it is so much longer of a translation than in the movie this is just another one of those things where i was just like what are we doing <laughs> This answers all the translations that we're going to get in this book answer all of our stupid questions about the, the final stage of the treasure hunt. It's crazy. Okay, so the first plank gets translated as, stand at the highest point, find the noble bird which sits on the warrior fallen in tears. He will take your hand and give you passage. And once again, she, you know, makes fun of Patrick and says that the glyph he thinks means Cibola means center of the world. Yeah, um... I, I liked the the take your hand and give you passage thing like that. I was like, mm, clocked that, knew what that was about. So I felt smart. I felt like I, I understood the movie. We're going to get to what all of this means later. Uh, but for now, it is at this point, because um, recall, Ben is getting the translation of this plank. That means Mitch now has to try to get the translation of this plank. And so in the movie, we see him very briefly sort of talking to Dr. Nichols the guy we met as being part of the Smithsonian um, at the very beginning of the movie slash the book. And we learn some very interesting information about Mr. Dr. Nichols. Dr. Nichols is about to die. And you know what? He might have deserved it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was a bad man. Apparently, Dr. Nichols 
was working with Mitch from the beginning. Sorry, this is my voice going up multiple registers. I mean, it makes sense how Mitch got the diary page then. Okay, you might be asking yourself, how did Mitch get the diary page? Well, Dr. Nichols, he's a Freemason. And apparently, the Freemasons know that the Booth diary page had been held onto by the Freemasons for a super long time. And that a 33rd degree Master Mason named Judge Terman was the one who had it. And so Nichols told Mitch that in exchange for a portion of the treasure. And so... Mitch killed Judge Terman and took the diary page. And that's how he got the diary page. And now Nichols is like, oh, I don't know. Maybe this murder is going to get linked back to me. He was a Freemason. I'm a Freemason. I'm out. And so Mitch has to kill him too. But how about you not kill another Freemason, bro? And this exploded my brain. So we asked the Wimberleys about it. (laughs) (laughs) And they confirmed. And then we were able later to confirm ourselves once we got our hands on the final shooting script. This scene is actually in the final shooting script. And it was likely filmed, but then cut for time. How do we get our hands on it? I I would love to know. There was something else that, they, that the Wibberleys said that I thought was funny in reference to this question. Uh, and I wrote this down verbatim. They said, quote, it's so funny how the memory of making a movie works. You write something, they film it, you see it in a cut, but then it gets cut. But like an amputated appendage, you feel like it's still there. <laughs> so like, the funny thing is, they thought that this was part of the final movie. So like, if in conversation, you ask them something about Dr. Nichols, just in general conversation, they probably would have told you about this and you'd be like, whoa! Right. <laughs> you know? Now, here's the thing. This is what's crazy to me. Emily, there's some evidence for this in the movie if you know to look for it. Mm. We know that Mitch visits Dr. Nichols to get this playing translation. And the first thing we see Nichols say is, this is not what I signed up for. That's part of the book line of this scene. Oh. So I think that's a remnant of this original version of the scene. I love it. Now, for that question that gets answered, a new question arises. And Emily, I wonder if you thought about this. It is now unclear to me how the Freemasons ever got the Booth Diary page. Yeah. The, mm, yeah. I Are the Freemasons good? Are they on the side of the Confederacy or are they on the side of the Union? And I realize, like, realistically, probably both. Um, because right. that's how life works. But I just feel like the Freemasons and the Knights Templar have been painted right in this like very specific light through National Treasure, the first film, mm-hmm. that we are meant to believe that they are just like fundamentally good people. So to think that like they were involved in the assassination of Lincoln and stealing this page and blah, like it just, it, that's just know, it. Man. Like, were they involved in the assassination? Was O'Loughlin himself a Freemason? Something else? Or, and, and, you know, the funny thing is I'm pretty sure the book doesn't even like care at all to try to explain it away. I think they want it to be a mystery because the Freemasons are supposed to be mysterious. So like somehow the Freemasons got it and it doesn't matter how they just got it. Cause they're the Freemasons. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, um, I almost feel like we need to give a moment here for this whole new revelation about the Mitch and Dr. Nichols relationship to sink in. And moment over, let's move on. (laughs) We have so much more to cover, everyone. And it just gets crazier. Like this, if, if 
This isn't it, even this isn't even scratching the surface. Not of... even. Not even. Okay, go on, go on, go on. Okay, so we are now in the Oval Office. We're, we're skipping around a bit, but we, we get to the Oval Office. Ben and Abigail see this altered presidential seal uh, in the Resolute desk. And we get a slightly different version of Riley, you know, mentioning his book and that he talked about it in his book. Um, but we get a little more info from the book as our group stands in uh, Lafayette Park. Riley's book actually shows a photo labeled Roswell, which is related to the UFO conspiracies from like the 1940s-ish. Um, and... I, th- I found this weird. There was an image of Marilyn Monroe's autopsy report from 1962. Um, and both of these images have a little stamp in the corner of the eagle clutching the scroll, meaning that those images are in the president's book. Yeah. And like what basically what was in the autopsy report or like right. the verdict of Roswell <laughs> is in, is in the president's book. Uh, would love to learn more about that. Uh, but we don't have time because now Ben of course has to talk to agent Sadusky about whether or not the president's secret book exists during their conversation. We learn that Sadusky is himself a 33rd degree master Mason this is also where Sadusky tells Ben that, remember Judge Terman, the guy who held onto the Booth Diary page for the Freemasons? He was murdered a few weeks ago. And guess what? Sadusky knew that Terman had the Booth Diary page. Which might explain some of Sadusky's skepticism when his agents came to him and said, "This Thomas Gates is in the news because this diary page came up mm. and Mitch Wilkinson produced it. So Sadusky, he knows about the diary page. So that's why he's suspicious of Mitch. How did Mitch get it? Well, now he knows Mitch killed him. Right. Why not Why not just go arrest Mitch right now? Once again, we could have arrested his brothers before. There's a reason for that. They actually explain that because it's the Freemasons. There's no record of the Freemasons ever having that page. So the proof that we have that, that Mitch killed Terman is basically invisible evidence. So anyway... Sadusky explains to Ben, this is very important, that the Freemasons held on to the diary page after all of those years because they, quote, believe it might contain information that was intended for them, end quote, meaning that the KGC had intercepted a missive intended for a Freemason. And Sadusky points out that it was intended for the Freemason, Confederate General Albert Pike. What? What is life? This left me with so many questions again. Once again, were the Freemasons pro-Confederacy? Were they supposed to steal the gold away from the Confederates to protect the nation as a whole? Was Pike a double agent? Was he in the Confederacy, but like working for the Union? What is going on? So say it with me. What is going on? Say it with me. We asked the Wibberleys. And this one blew my mind. The Wibberleys confirmed that in their conception of this story, Confederate General Albert Pike was a double agent. 
So he was working for the Union within the Confederate ranks. Now, the Wiverleys in this case were inspired by the fact that at one point, Albert Pike was the only Confederate general to have a commemorative statue in Washington, D.C. So they thought, what if he got that statue because he was secretly helping the Union? Like, see, that's just the kind of cool stuff that, like... Brilliant. Yeah, you you can't say history is not involved. (laughs) It makes me sad because sometimes we've critiqued the second movie before for having what seems like less of the historical components. And it's clear that the historical components were written. They were there. They just weren't there in in the movie. (laughs) Well, let me say this. We know they cut a lot from the second film, and they altered a lot as well. When we had the opportunity to read the final filming scripts recently, the final filming script for the second movie is more than 20 pages longer than for the first movie. And yet they're the same length, like they're the same runtime, two hours and 11 minutes. That proves it was so much longer and needed to have some of these elements cut out. Now, did they cut out the right ones? That's a whole other episode right, conversation. Right. <laughs> um, I feel like some of this would have been helpful, but you know. Who are we to say? Minor detail. Something that I have always thought about, and I don't know if I've brought it to you specifically, but I know that we we get a lot of people you know in the the forums and on the interwebs um get mad about a specific thing which is that when ben is you know jumping off of the little boat that he and patrick are on to attend the president's birthday party at mount vernon he ends up with a a tuxedo on uh when he gets out of the water and the assumption is that the tuxedo was under the wetsuit the entire time but people get mad because this is like not super feasible what we figured out is that they actually tell us that the tuxedo was in a like waterproof bag and so he just pulled it out and got changed there i think it's also arguably almost even more important to confirm that they also say that the sketch of like george washington's sketch of mount vernon is kept in a dry bag which is that is also important helpful um Now, here's something interesting. Upon accessing the president, um, you know, Ben says hello and happy birthday. And the president makes a passing comment that Ben was his Lindbergh Award winner. Now, yeah. Did you know what that was? I had no idea. And it will surprise you that I didn't look it up. Well, that's why I did, because I knew you wouldn't. (laughs) And so I could not for the life of me find this award online, Em. So Y'all, I work in D.C. I did some some D.C. recon. I asked around, and apparently the Lindbergh Award is officially designated uh, by the Department of Defense, specifically from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And it's pretty rare, like like a Congressional Medal of Honor, like something like that. Um, So this is a big deal. But I will also point out that when I was searching on Google, I did find a different award called the Hubbard Medal, which is a National Geographic Society honor that's considered the nation's highest honor for explorers. The reason I bring this up is because Charles Lindbergh, he was the guy who conducted the first ever solo transatlantic flight in 1927. He was a recipient of the Hubbard Medal. And so I heard Lindbergh, I heard you know, you know, high honor. And then I saw this was for explorers. And I was like, Ben? Ben. Anyway. It's got to be it. (laughs) You know, 
So in any case, um, minor details while we're still at Mount Vernon, Ben clarifies that the the tunnel under Mount Vernon that they're about to explore was an escape route for Washington's family. Now, my question was like, what would they need to escape from? But I don't know, Em, do you have any predictions? I mean, if you think about it, like in the White House, I feel like anywhere the president goes, there's typically like some kind of like backup plan situation for like in case the president's life is threatened like either a bunker or like a place where they can get out um so i feel like to have it at mount vernon which not only you know is a place where i mean they wouldn't have known it back then that other presidents were going to use it but like since george washington spent so much time there it would make sense that they would have maybe a little escape route for him Fair enough. Um, also, I feel the need to point out that the tunnel entrance is in a cellar underneath the stables in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was pictured. I was like, there were no stables where we went. Mm-mm. I mean, they did have stables, but that was not, not- there. Okay. Yes. Not that- where we not where we went into the tunnel. Right. That was just the cellar under the house. I, yes. I feel like we should clarify. Um, okay. Now we're in the tunnel and the book actually does show the president's hostility towards Ben much more like the national treasure Two trailer than the final movie cut. We've commented on this before. He says, this is a good line. I wrote this down. He says, quote, I'm not answering any question and you are going to prison. How soon you open that door will determine for how many years right now you're looking at five to 10 end quote um so yeah president's mad also like only five to ten yeah that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) um before giving ben the codes for the library of congress the president basically says that he's telling ben this info in the first place because Ben once risked his life to protect the Declaration of Independence, which I thought was an interesting callback. Also, I feel the need to to mention that the president himself did not have the codes memorized. They were written down on a piece of paper in his wallet. And this like pained me because, again, first rule of government, as someone who knows, is you can't write down passwords anywhere. You're like not yeah. allowed. Um, and finally, the line that completely and utterly broke me, Emily. The president asks Ben to look at page 174. You heard that right, folks. Page 174. Did, did, did you explode? I lost my mind. I texted everyone I knew. Yeah, like, I will say you. I was one of the people you texted before I read the book. So I knew it was coming, but was still shocked to see it. Okay. This is one of my favorite things that we learned from the Wibberleys, because if we were going to ask them anything, it was this. And yeah, they confirmed that their final shooting script said 174, and they really didn't know why it was changed, so they kindly asked John Turtletop for us. Casually. And he said, and I quote, Because I felt that whatever was on the page shouldn't be from too late in our history. Page 174 felt a bit like the 1940s or 1950s to me. Page 47 felt more likely to be 18th or 19th century. It's also a prime number, which felt more mysterious, end quote. This not only was just the most beautiful piece of insider baseball, it was also super validating. 
because Emily and I have spent a lot of time trying to understand what could be on page 47. We've said, we've done some some kind of math, kind of projecting, predicting from understanding these franchises. And we've basically said that the page 47 has got to come from basically before the 19, before 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was very cool to hear John Turtletop say that independently. So after this scene, of course, Ben is going to go take the drive to the Library of Congress. In the movie and the book, we now have a brief interlude where Sadusky finds out that the president's been kidnapped. You remember, the president's been what? Mm -hmm. Gates. That, that, that line. Mm -hmm. um, now, think back, Emily, really hard to the scene where we see that happen in the movie. Sadusky's at a crime scene. Oh my gosh. In the book, this is revealed to be the crime scene of Dr. Nichols' murder. More it remnants. So much sense. Yeah, more remnants of that of that really important tidbit, which I love now that I know. Okay. Get away from that. Now we're at the Library of Congress. <laughs> um, once they find the president's book, Ben finds the entry in question not based on the year or based on the president as we see in the movie, which is, I think, very elegant in the movie. He just finds the label City of Gold. <laughs> kind of like gold for Confederacy. Um, I'll also point out that the, the president's secret book in the novel lacks all the entries that we know from the movie about the Resolute Desk, Queen Victoria, and those missives as well. And now, since we know that the book novel, the novel, represents a near final version of the script, and all of this important information was still missing, then it's really not surprising that the story told in the film's book of secrets itself was full of holes, because it was clearly written super last minute, if mm -hmm. it wasn't written yet by the time this book was coming together, let's put it that way. Yeah, and can I just say... I feel like we could have avoided many an existential crisis <laughs> uh, trying to connect the dots. Like, what exactly happened uh, in the way that the president's book in the movie, like, describes events occurring. Uh, that that just caused that. I there were many conversations that we've had where I've had extreme amounts of anxiety about that. So I feel like if we could have just included this, like it just it would have been better. But I'm it's the, okay. I'm the first person to complain that movies these days are too long. I would have gladly watched an additional twenty minutes of this movie to get it to two and a half hours if we oh, got yeah. all this explanation. <laughs> Yeah, a little, little more time. That's all. Well, you're, you're, we're already there. Yeah, we'll for sit. sure. For sure. Um, I will briefly mention that, you know, now we're escaping the Library of Congress. The deleted scene that we've talked about 18,000 times with Ben and Agent Sadusky on the roof over the Great Hall of the Library does appear in the book. We know it was filmed because it's available online. And I only mention it because we are, spoiler alert, going to eventually get an answer as to what is the real relationship between Ben and Agent Sadusky by the end of this book. What? Okay. So now now we're with Dr. Helen Mirren, or Dr. Appleton. Um, you know, we Mitch has come in and demanded that she translate the, the new plank for him, um, at which point they realize that 
Patrick's coming and the same thing happens, right? Where like he goes in the closet or whatever and he's like, lie to Patrick and blah, blah, blah. Or your life depends on it or his life depends on it, like all that stuff. And she gives the same translation to Patrick uh, in the book as she does in the movie, which I thought was interesting given the liberties that have been taken elsewhere. Yeah, but you know what? I have for the longest time been so suspicious about the Lakota part of the translation, right? The whole um, islands of stone and a sea of grass. And she says that's what the Lakota used called the Black Hills. Um, and I'm like, why would this say Lakota? Anything related to the Lakota? Um, so I did look up the origins of the, the civilizations involved here. So the Lakota um, and the Olmecs. And the Lakota's recorded history dates back to the year 900. But recall, we've discussed before, the Olmecs, their time period was in the hundreds to thousands BCE range, which would imply that for this this whole Lakota thing not to have been a plot hole in both the book and the movie now, since we do know that the plank is quote-unquote protozoacan, the Lakota would have had to have gotten this whole islands of stone and a sea of grass moniker from the Mesoamerican civilizations themselves. So I think it's kind of a plot hole. Now, that being said, we haven't talked about this yet. The book is super non-committal about oh, yeah. which civilization the city of gold belongs to. And I don't feel bad saying the filming script is even less committal than that. Mm -hmm. But going, and so then I felt crazy again. I was like, oh my God, are we misinterpreting the whole Olmec thing? Like, are we? But the movie really does say the word Olmec, mm -hmm. says Protozoacan, doesn't say Mayan, Aztec, it doesn't say anything else. So I think in the final cut, it definitely, like we're meant to believe it's Olmec, um, even if they're not going to formally commit. Do you agree? Oh, for sure. Okay, cool. I, I that was another thing I was losing my mind over. So the the book confirms that ultimately the false clue that Dr. Helen Mirren gave to Patrick uh, is the hummingbird clue. Uh, we we know this because we've seen this in the deleted scene uh, that kind of explains it. Um, and at this point is you know I think I've said it a lot. Things have gone off the rails, but at this point everything is different um it, it's very clear here that the the book that we were reading goes with what we've been calling the alternative ending uh based on deleted scenes from the film um yeah aubrey you and you may basically take the rest of this <laughs> <laughs> i'm so overcome with shock okay well i'm the deleted scenes in question that you can watch online, this is where Ben effectively turns himself into the FBI to get Mitch arrested so that Ben can save his mom because Mitch, right, has abducted Emily. And then Ben goes and says, hey, Sadusky, I stole the Book of Secrets. I'll only tell you where it is if you let me and I guess Mitch go since we have the final clues of Cibola. Then you can go find the Book of Secrets, and you'll just catch me again when I'm done finding Cibola. Um, That is the version we see in deleted scenes. That is the version we get in this book. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say, there's a very smart move by Ben in the book. Did you catch this? 
I did, and it, it kind of, like, connected to some other things we've seen in, like, deleted scenes uh, from, like, the Library of Congress with Sadusky, to, to me at least. Um, I don't know if you felt that way, but... Like, like protecting himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Ben tells Sadusky, oh, you don't, you don't believe me that I stole the Book of Secrets? Just go call the president and ask if the, the Book of Secrets was stolen. But obviously, Sadusky can't do that, because doing so would implicate Sadusky himself. So it's like the perfect, this perfect, like, loophole that Ben has found, which is not surprising. Anyway, I just had to point that out. So now we finally get Emily Appleton's correct translation of the second plank ready because now things are going to start going like off the walls Mm -hmm. the correct translation is great cat who guards an island of stone in a sea of trees this is how the group ends up climbing to cougar peak or where it used to be since it was destroyed during mount rushmore's construction now we knew again from deleted scenes that cougar peak was somehow being implicated but we never fully saw or understood it so when they get to cougar peak or again where it used to be that is the translation of the quote stand at the highest point clue that emily translated from the first plank in combination with great cat because it's cougar right Mm. so they go up the great cat is guarding an island of stone in a sea of trees. And when they look at the lake below, they're also calling back to another clue from the initial plank. The whole fallen warrior clue. One of the boulders in the lake is shaped like a fallen warrior. That's how they know which of the granite boulders to go to. And then there was something about, like, tears, too, right? The tears of the lake. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this, to me, I was just like, why did we not get, like, I know why, because it took too much time. But, like, I feel like we could have covered this in the movie, and it would have literally just made, like, all of the clues that they got make sense. Well, the Wiverleys explained to us why this didn't end up happening. They confessed that production could not find a lake to kind of fit the specifications here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that means, you know, they couldn't stand at a high point in Mount Rushmore and look down on a lake. Because as we know, Sylvan Lake is pretty far away. True. And so the clue itself got truncated to just cloudless rain. Mm. Which ends up being important when they get to the boulder that they're supposed to be on. Now, Mitch has this letter, as we know from the movie. It came up before, but barely. It like didn't come up yeah, much in the it, book. It's one of the things that I, I forget very easily. <laughs> so Mitch's letter ended up having another different clue in it. It said, quote, to awake the warrior, he must be nourished, end quote. And the book says that the eagle's beak has like a cracked like an opening crack now in the movie it's like the center of his chest do you remember Mm -hmm. that and so ben decides that feeding the eagle his hand is how the eagle gets nourished and how the eagle will take him by the hand so it's effectively the same thing it just makes it so that by putting it in his chest and whatever like that was never weird to me they just were able to eliminate that whole bit that like whole extra line of clue in a way Mm. Now, 
you know, oh, he opens the latch, they go down to the tunnel. Immediately inside of the tunnel, this is where some of our civilization mix-up begins happening. Dr. Appleton says that the carvings they immediately see are either Aztec or Mayan. Now, earlier, I'll point out, Ben predicts that the the glyphs are Olmec. He tells his mom that. She says, definitely Proto-Zochaean. Um, and then something interesting. You know how in the movie, like the tunnel door slams shut kind of by accident? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sadowski's is coming at them with, with a helicopter um, <laughs> to, to arrest them. Uh, so they need to escape him. So they close the door on themselves. Yeah. A hundred percent, which I thought was fascinating to do that. They kind of call back to the Templar treasure search because they're like, there's got to be another way out. So we're just going to close the door. Um, Here's another difference. Em, did you, did you catch the prophecy? Yeah, that was cool. Well, I mean, not like the contents aren't cool, but like it was cool that it was there. Yeah. So on the wall of the tunnel is an engraving that tells a prophecy about Pale gods arriving in great ships in search of gold. Cities will be destroyed. Now, Emily Appleton, who reads this in her ability to translate apparently all of the ancient civilization languages on the the drop of a The Gates family is just so talented. (laughs) So talented. Um, She says that this is 3,000 years old and that it means the native populations knew the conquistadors were coming and that's why they hid their gold, which... Again, I like that. Makes mm-hmm. sense. We've always wondered, how did it end up there? Right. So that's cool. Um, You know, we're in the tunnels. There are tiny details changed throughout the tunnel sequence, like how they end up falling through the trap door and get off, onto and off of the tilt platform, which, did you notice the change in shape of the tilt platform? This is what I little... did. Did you? It was a circle was instead a circle. of the square, which it is in the movie. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Well, I, I think, think it's almost better in the movie because that it's a square because there are four of them. So it's like yeah. four points. Whereas like with a circle, it's like, I mean, like, yeah, you can stand at four different points of a circle. It's just less obvious. I just, yeah. I like the square better, even though that scene stresses me out. Well, that's probably why you noticed it. I'm guessing like the difference here. But did you notice what happens when they get to like the fake out room, the antechamber? Uh, No. You didn't catch the difference here? Oh, there was water. Well, there's water everywhere in this in this movie. Remember, water is the villain? <laughs> Actually, water is less of a villain in the book. It is. It is. It's not a villain here. <laughs> okay, I'll explain. So, you know how in the movie, they get to the big cavern, and for, like, literally half a second, they're like, oh, no, it's not here. We have to turn around. But then literally half a second later, it's like, no, the water has to drain somewhere. Let's turn this wheel so we don't all drown. And then it like dissipates. Well, in the book, this cavern is much more of a real fake out chamber. Uh, for half a second, Ben actually believes the fake out, just like in National Treasure. He believes it a lot more in this in this book than he does in the movie. I'll also point out the cavern itself is made of pyrite. It's made of fool's gold, which is not mm. something that happens in the movie. Uh, it's also mostly a lake. So it's not just flooding with water. It is itself like a standing lake. Now, all of a sudden, they kind of just like look down in the lake and they realize that the whole city is at the bottom of it. Naturally. And when they use the wheel to stop the flow of water or whatever, the lake 
trains and they can see the city. So this is a little different, of course, than the movie because they have to go down another tunnel to mm-hmm. then get to the city of gold. So this is kind of fun. This is like looking in a fishbowl, I guess, yeah. and seeing like a city at the bottom. Um. So yeah, any any well, we're gonna get to the actual city and like what happens in a second. <laughs> but this next thing that happens with Patrick and Emily is so uh... so hugely important. Nor their scenes in the tunnels are mostly a throwaway unless you're invested in their relationship, which I'm sure you are, but like I couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. In the book, they actually end up at a version of a deleted scene that we have online. It's just mm-hmm. that we don't have a lot of context for that scene online. To set the stage for you, you might have seen the deleted scene on YouTube where Patrick and Emily get to this door. And it has, like, a bunch of, like, carved holes in it. And in most of the holes, there are, like, severed skeleton arms. And they learn that, basically, you put your arm in the wrong hole to find the doorknob, and a lever comes down and chops your arm off. And there's just, like, there's all these skeletons around them and all these arms in the door, right? Do you remember the scene, Em? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the book, they realize somehow, it's not clear how, they realize that all of the skeletons are those of the lost Roanoke colonists. What? Sound familiar, listeners? Yeah. You might recall that last season, season five of National Treasure Hunt, we overviewed the Gates Family Mystery prequel book series, and book number three in that series, titled Uncharted, explains that the Roanoke colonists disappeared searching for Cibola, and that they might have even found it. So then I'm like, oh my god, which of these books is prefacing which book? Like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, this National Treasure 2 book or book three Uncharted? That's why I said the years become important. So, Mm. this book that we're overviewing today was published in 2007. The Uncharted book was published in 2008. Ooh. So, this book came first. This Roanoke colonist assertion came first from an early version of this movie. And so, this is what set up the prequel book that we were so astonished and impressed by. Nice. Now, something that the Wibberleys told us, Emily, is that a big part of their pitch to get Nick Cage onto the sequel movie was this idea that the Roanoke colonists disappeared looking for the treasure. How pissed do you think he was when that wasn't in there? I mean, I'm annoyed now because I love that so much. Although I wish I knew better, like, how they knew that the skeletons were those of the Roanoke colonists. Talking about, like, name name tags. Like, I come from Roanoke. (laughs) Like, I don't know how you know that, but we'll take it, I guess. Beggars can't be choosers. No, no. Okay, keep going. There's, there's, there, once again, things have gotten off the rails, but now we are just throwing paint at a canvas. What, What Emily means by this point is our entire notes document is bold from here on out which means it's important so now we're back in the you know pyrite chamber overlooking the city of gold it's a steep lake so they're sort of on a ledge overlooking the lake well how do we get rid of mitch this time around emily 
Did you not catch this? No, that's why I said what happened to Mitch. Okay, listeners, I'm making sure Emily does not cut this in the episode edit. What she's referring to is earlier today, she read the book earlier today, earlier recording day, by the way, just gonna throw her under the bus there. And she texts me, she's like, yeah, they just stopped talking about Mitch. And I was like, oh yeah, I didn't really care. It was fine. I thought she was talking about what we're going to get to at the end, sort of the resolution to everything. Apparently she missed the fact that Mitch died. Yeah. I was so caught up in all this other stuff, Aubrey. So they're on the ledge overlooking the city, and Mitch starts a fist fight with Ben. He literally said, like, Ben's like, oh, this is too much for one person. And Mitch is like, I'm glad you feel that way, because I wasn't planning on sharing it. Punch! And, like, they start fist fighting, and, like, it gets super precarious for everyone involved. Uh, But then in the end, Mitch falls over the ledge and basically gets the Shaw treatment from the first movie. Hmm. He splats. Flat. And you missed that. I did. Wow. I love it now, though. Um, the Wimberleys were able to confirm to us that this was from an older draft. The final shooting script does, in fact, have Mitch's big sacrifice that we see in the movie itself. Okay. Now we are at the very end. And we have to... I know we've been here for a while, but this is the best part, I promise. Okay. Yeah, so I would just like to point out, we just leave. Right. <laughs> right. Like, because it's just like, peace. Water's not a villain anymore. Somehow nope. we get out without really having to try. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot more like the structure of the first movie. I mean, it always bugs me how there's that whole extra thing at the end of the you know the second escaping Cibola. Um, But after getting out, Ben calls Sadesky, demands to speak with the president. And Sadesky's like, oh, you're not in a position to make demands. And Ben's like, I'll just tell the president I saw what was on page 174. And so Ben gets to, I guess, talk to the president or something. We don't get to hear or see that. What we do get is the following. Number one, the president of the United States is covering up the fact, has he's chosen to cover up the fact that Cibola has been found. Why, you may ask? Sadusky says, quote, for his own reasons. Weird, but okay. Take that as you will. Number two. This is a big one. Everyone involved will get credit for the discovery, but what does that credit actually mean? Because the, the treasure is a secret, right? It means that they're going to have their names written as the discoverers inside the book of secrets which no one will ever see and also mitch doesn't get his name that's what i thought you were referring to before now i will point out this is not in the book but i don't know if you noticed this M. if the only recognition they get is in the book of secrets then the whole point of ben doing this treasure hunt was for naught he cannot prove thomas gates's innocence oh my gosh so what no! was the point? What was the point for him? Because that was his point. And there's no and and it's already been publicized, right? That that whole announcement had already been made about Thomas Gates being the artifacts. Maybe the president like fixes it somehow. Maybe he like tells a story. Disney magic. Okay. Number three, very important to Riley. The president is giving them some sort of a reward. All right. Now we get to the good stuff. Number four. As Ben and Sadusky are talking, we never see Ben talking to the president again. He's only talking to Sadusky. 
there's some secret Masonic thing that's carried out of the City of Gold under like a uh, Masonic shroud. And there's a line that implies that Sadusky only told Ben about the secret book in the first place so that Ben would find Cibola and whatever this mysterious Masonic thing is. So this is a whole new element to the ben Sadusky relationship. Sadusky is helping Ben, but only so that he can use Ben for his own purposes. Which, like, feels super important for, like, the context of the relationship between them. It, it, uh, I can't form words. It's a good thing I wrote all this down. Okay, so naturally, we asked the Wibberleys about this, and they confirmed very straightforward. They're like, yeah. Sadusky was always using Ben to find Cibola so that he could locate this important Masonic relic. Marianne told us the men, you know, secreting away this relic under the Masonic cloth that we see in the book, that was actually filmed. But it was cut from the movie. What does this mean for our interpretation of Ben and Sadusky in National Treasure 2, Emily? Also, like, what does it mean for our our interpretation of Sadusky as a character like moving forward because I'm thinking like in edge of history type stuff like what is like I feel like now his like kind of sketchiness that they seem to be implying might make some I don't know Hey everyone, Aubrey from the future here. As Emily hinted at earlier in this episode, we actually recorded this episode around Christmas. And since that time, we've seen a couple more episodes of Edge of History. Why is that relevant? Well, it turns out that when we asked the Wibberleys about this particular scene in the National Treasure Book of Secrets novel, they confirmed to us that this element of Sadusky using Ben to find the Masonic relic was something that they absolutely loved and remembered and incorporated into the story for Edge of History. Now, they said, you know, what if Sadusky really needed Ben to find Cibola because he knew that it held, for example, the Jade Box, a clue to the Pan-American treasure at stake in Edge of History. And it turns out that in episode three of the first season of National Treasure Edge of History, we do get a very slight passing comment from Liam when he says, my grandfather found the Jade Box in or around Cibola, whatever. That is what they secreted out of Cibola in this novelization version of the film. Okay, end of our future casting. That is pretty much the end of the book. Uh, we still get our fireworks display, but now they're just watching it. And they kiss, and also Patrick and Emily are kissing, and I'm so happy. Yeah, whatever. Um, and I then will... it, the book literally ends with him saying like something about like all he needs is Abigail's love or something. Oh, it's so sweet. It is very sweet. And then at the really end of the book, it advertises the Gates Family Mystery Series. And I was like, yep. this just really wraps up our whole last year. <laughs> yep. Okay. Back to square one. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. This has been lengthy, but I think very worth it for any oh, yes. National Treasure fans. Um, 
we went through every major detail that you need to know from this book. I promise you, if you buy this book and read it yourself, you will be surprised again because it's just that insane. Emily, did you have any overarching thoughts about this experience? I feel like this was a trap uh, for me personally because I was already confused (laughs) about the second film. Um, and now we have this story, which in many ways answers, right, a lot of the things that I was confused about in the second film. But also, I know I'm not going to remember which things came from the book and which things came from the film. So I just want to apologize in advance uh, for the fun that will ensue as a result of that. I think the crazy part is it answered so many questions, but introduced enough new stuff that's not relevant to the plot holes that you, I'm sorry, Emily, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm excited to get some of these details into our book to make some of our, uh, our, our, the book that we have written. We've talked about so many books today Um, that will help us in our, you know, discussions and and predictions but i'm a little worried about how to do it because there's just so much here like this is like another chapter i'm not writing another chapter do not worry uh but it it could be it's that much you know what i mean yeah um my favorite i think my favorite bits were the the nichols and mitch Mm. um it was the albert pike is a double agent and the whole that whole ending with Sadusky and Ben's conversation that's those are can't do much better than that I kind of loved the ending of this book oh yeah it was great because it it didn't end on the page 47 or 174 cliffhanger although that's still like implied but it it all it ends on a cliffhanger and like one could argue that the cliffhanger it ends on happens to be more relevant to the content that we are receiving first uh, in terms of a series rather than the third National Treasure movie at this point? Well, I think that's right. And I think the other question, so this is really timely, but I think the other question is why, if they if they filmed this scene, why did they choose not to use it? I'm wondering if it's because they felt that using this would have pigeonholed them into a storyline they weren't fully sure of for the third movie. Because there's no way you secret away that Masonic thing and not mention page 174, 47, and then don't talk about it in the third movie. Especially if you were trying initially to create the third movie a couple years later. Right. I mm. think doing the route that they went, it gave them more room to explore. And then maybe that kind of backfired. And that's why it's been so long because they had too many ideas or not enough ideas or anything. Like if they went this route, would we have gotten the movie faster? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a lot to take in, everyone. Um, as you continue to process... <laughs> all of this with us uh, in real time and then beyond your listening of the episode, please feel free to find us on social media uh, to continue these conversations. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. And we also have our website uh, on which you can submit 
questions and stuff as well. Uh, we also have a Discord going right now. So if you would like the link to join that Discord, feel free to message us on one of our social media platforms. And thanks for listening. Yeah, y'all, this was an absolute joy of an episode to bring to you all today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed putting it together, genuinely. Um, this is the kind of stuff we live for at this point. So um, we hope you'll join us again for our next episode in two weeks' time. That is going to be one of our historical deep dives, um, or partially historical, partially just like context-based deep dives, this time into U.S coins so coin-based currency this is a follow-up on episode 48 from last season where we did paper currency we're doing it again with coins which i think will be really interesting because coins are a much more traditional conception of treasure mm -hmm. so come back for that we'll all learn something together as usual and until then i'm aubrey and i'm emily and thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt mm -hmm.